Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of One Vision. Today, we are delighted to have Drew Graham, Director of Digital Strategy at Barclays, but actually more known as one of the philosophers in this space and one of Brad's soulmates. On LinkedIn, Drew, you describe yourself as a serial entrepreneur turned banker and a sheep in wolves clothing. I'm trying to say this without laughing out loud. So let's start here. Welcome to, to our show, Drew. And let's talk a little bit about your background and that sheep and the wolf. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Thea. Um, to be called a philosopher and one of Brad's helmets in the same sentence is quite quite humbling. Um, yeah, the sheep and wolf's clothing. Um, bankers are known for lots of things, stereotypically, and um, uh, being nice, good corporate citizens and guardians of society isn't normally one of it. Hence, the wolf... Um, and I've got no idea what I'm doing um, and just kind of bumble about a little bit, um, uh, trying to trying to influence the strategy of, of, of these wolves. And so I call myself a sheep. And I think it was somebody else, actually, that came up with the phrase. And it's just kind of stuck now um, and uh, gets bandied about. I've, I've had many a productive conversation with teams of lawyers, corporate communications and PR people at banks about whether I'm allowed to keep this particular phrase in my bio. But I I refuse to see that particular little phrase. Many others, many others have fallen by the wayside. Far more far more pejorative phrases have gone, but that one stays. Um. Yeah, I mean, when when you when you think about the the, the challenges that we have with lawyers and uh, with with comms folks and uh, PR folks and marketing folks over the years uh, with inside a bank, I can imagine those conversations. So so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, when you think about your past, past your time, your current you know role at Barclays and at Standard Chartered, which is where we first met, I think uh, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, you you didn't come into banking from banking at all, which is what I love because you know I, I don't think that people in bank should come from banking. Um, you founded a company in Indonesia. You created an oil and gas firm in Papua New Guinea, um, which is something we should talk about. An analytics startup in Berlin, and you started a zipline startup in Singapore, um, just to name mm. a few. So talk about all of that a little bit, and and how did you end up in banking? Um. I, I, to say that I f- accidentally fell into banking would, would be no exaggeration. Uh, let, let me tell that story because it's it's quite a um, – whenever anybody asks the question about how you ended up working for a bank, they expect to hear some you know, wonderful story about how I, my company was acquired by a multi-billion dollar international bank or something like that, and it's just the complete opposite. And it's just a very personal and not particularly glorious story. Uh, I was running a company in Indonesia with, if we talk about soulmates, my my founder soulmate called Adriana Tan. Uh, we started this thing, uh, which we'll talk a bit more about later on. Um, and I kind of felt like I'd found my purpose in life. Um, we was building something truly meaningful, something that was going to have true scale uh, with somebody who I, I dearly love spending time with and building the company with. Um, uh, we raised some money from some incredible investors that I remain very grateful for, and I just got sick. Um, I ended up being diagnosed with a, a chronic condition that just sucked all of the energy out of me. And entrepreneurship 
it genuinely is one of the hardest things that somebody can do. I mean, it is a it is a brutal experience. And uh, after several months of um, trying to both kind of run a high growth tech fintech company in a difficult country like Indonesia and also fix my health, I realized I couldn't do both. And I um, had some uh, conversations with the investors um, who were to an individual exceedingly understanding um, and decided I needed to go and do something that was going to be able to give me some breathing space. And somebody on our board of advisors ran tech strategy for one of the big banks. Um, and when I went to go and have the conversation with him and explain what was going on, his immediate response was, hey, we need people like you in, inside Stan Chart. Come and, come and be you um, inside the organization. And uh, that's how I fell into banking. Uh, I needed a paycheck. I needed health insurance. Um, I wanted to stay one degree away from where my heart was, which was in kind of emerging markets fintech. Uh, and it just, it just fell into my lap. Um, but it's not like it's not like it's not like Stan Chart had an opening for a kind of idiot, weird, fundamentalist, uh, swearing, failed entrepreneur. It's not like that was the job description. I ended up in um, uh, a, a role of, I think, an architect, um, data architect. I think that's actually what my official job title was, um, and uh, ended up. Um, hanging out with the cool kids in the innovation department. Um, and uh, <laughs> here's, here's a couple of stories I don't think have been told publicly before, but maybe maybe it's been long enough that they're not going to come back to haunt me. I um, uh, had a desk inside the big, ugly, corporate, massive kind of um, uh, farm on one side of the island in Singapore and then discovered in this nice, beautiful tour town, Marina Bay Financial Center, um, on a floor, this this area with beanbags and cool people and jeans and people who were talking about interesting things. And so I just like picked up my laptop and moved to the other side of the island and sat down and started working there. Um, and they turned around and said, "You you can't. You have a desk like at the other end. You're not allowed to work there." I was like, "No, no, no. I'm I'm I I, I work here now. I wear jeans and I wear." or birds and I sit here and I do this and they're like no you can't I'm like well I'm not going to move so you can either bring the work to me <laughs> or we can end the conversation and eventually they gave up fighting and so I did my work which again was this data architect work um, sat in the, what was in the innovation department and then as very often happens in banks there was a complete game of musical chairs and all of my various bosses moved and I just stayed quiet and it wasn't until the end of that financial year when the person who ran the innovation department was looking through, <laughs> was looking through the budgets that he came up to me and went, hey, you, you don't work for me. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm sure and I've, I've worked here for as long as I've, I've been in the bank. Of course, of course I work here. It's like, no, you, you work in data architecture. I'm like, no, I don't know what that's about. That's obviously an admin error. So that's how I ended up working in innovation and banking by just refusing to move off the beanbags. That's actually kind of a funny story. Um, it, it reminds me of one of the jokes we always had um, whenever we have a big corporate, banks and insurance companies and otherwise, um, they're 
whenever you think about the innovation department, it's either like a big, nice open area with beanbags, with beautiful coffee machines, beautiful furniture, all open space. Um, and uh, it, it, it's very different vibe and feel. Let's talk a little bit about Hong Kong Standard Charter, yeah. uh, Mox Bank, uh, and then also part of your remit at Barclays to create a new banking experience, hopefully more innovative new experiences. What have you learned um, from these and about what it takes to actually develop new ideas inside a large global bank, uh, apart from, you know, having to physically move yourself to a different part of the world? <laughs> and uh, how does that compare to like actually running your own shop? Oh, I mean, there is, I was going to say there's no comparison, but that, that's a, a particularly closed answer to the question. Um, uh, let's talk about how you kind of do, try and do new things inside a bank. Um, I, kind of given that story, obviously, my background until um, I, I fell into banking is just entirely entrepreneurial. I had either started or run um, every company I've been involved with for like, God, uh, 20, no, like 15, 16 years before I fell into banking. And so the idea of not being the boss um, and the idea of not being ultimately responsible for the thing I was working on was entirely new to me. Um, the idea that somebody could tell me what to do was entirely new to me. And I, I, I think if you uh, spoke to anybody who I've worked for over the last few years in banking, they'd all tell you the same thing, which is that I still haven't learned how people can tell me what to do. Um, I've still ended up being a particularly um, truculent, obstructive and um, fundamentalist employee. Um, but the act of trying to get stuff changed in banking, I, I, I genuinely don't think I actually know, having done it for a few years now, how to do it. I've just approached it the same way I've kind of approached the idea of doing a startup, which is that you find a problem and you bootstrap the solution and you demonstrate that the problem is big and you demonstrate the solution is applicable. Uh, and then you make as much noise as you can about it. Um, and you do that in a startup. And that's kind of been my playbook of doing that in doing that in the bank. Um, there was a, um, the, the way that we ended up doing mocks was a kind of a confluence of uh, various different people approaching it. Um, and I'd approached it by writing a short paper internally um, inside Stan Chart, uh, talking about how we had taken our eye off the ball and what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, when I saw uh, some of the internal ways that we were thinking about competition in Hong Kong, we kind of talked about HSBC, Hang Seng, Bank of China. Um, uh, but that was it, kind of, we didn't think that uh, Tencent and Financial, uh, the Alipay wallet, WeChat, um, were kind of competitors. And so we talked about kind of the total market size purely in terms of bank accounts. And then we talked about competitors purely in terms of conventional financial services. So I put together a, um, a small um, uh, memo that kind of talked about what was going on in Hong Kong when it came down to uh, Dian Rong, who at the time were, were on the process of moving from Hong Kong into mainland China. Um, and uh, WeLab, who uh, back then weren't a bank, they were, um, they were uh, had only just started on that journey. Um, and 
started to talk about the numbers um, when you when you incorporate that and think about Hong Kong as part of the Greater Bay Area and kind of reframe the question. And um, again, I've written uh, I don't know dozens of these over my time, which was exactly the same thing of finding something that people weren't thinking about the same way I thought about, and then framing it in a different way. And this one just got traction. I ended up being pulled into bigger and bigger and bigger meetings to talk about this um, until um, I got put into the into a meeting with a guy that ran uh, retail banking um, for the bank. And I did what I do and went off and rant and uh, called everybody who worked for him uh, derogatory names. Um, and the outcome of that was he said, well, look, we're, um, We've been thinking that we need to do something in terms of building a new bank from scratch. Um, do you think you'd be interested in that? And so that was kind of how I ended up being the first boots on the ground for what turned into Mox Bank. It, it grew far bigger than me very, very quickly. Um, but I'd like to think I had a, um, a part in instigating that. And so, yeah, Upton moved to Hong Kong and uh, did all the beginning ethnographic research and uh, figured out what it is that we should be building and why, and given my fintech background, started to pull together the various different um, external partners and components that we were going to need to build it, um, uh, based on two ideas, based on the first idea that um, <laughs> uh, the worst thing that bankers are at, uh, the, the worst thing that bankers are good at, or the thing that bankers aren't good at is figuring out what their customers want. Um, and Thing that bankers are out of figuring out how to build a bank and using that that we're going to have to go to customers via third parties partners and that we're going to have to think about technical architecture in terms of third parties um I've created that platforms role for myself um i did that for a small while um and then uh as very often happens with uh opinionated um fundamentalist entrepreneurs inside banking organizations. Um, my views started to di diverge from those of the larger organization. Um, and after my views had diverged, we physically diverged and um, I moved on to uh, moved on to other things and landed. I was about to start a VC company, actually. Um, I, I was um, had it all lined up, paperwork. Um, uh, early stage emerging markets fintech but with blended finance because venture isn't the answer to every question like we seem to think it is in the world at the moment and uh was about to go and do that uh decided i wanted to spend six months back in the uk with my family um uh caught up with uh, megan kaywood uh well megan cooper knee kaywood um who had left starling and joined barclays and she and i hung out for a bit and then met her boss at Barclays, who um, did a pretty good sales job and convinced me to not start my VC firm and come and uh, come and take a swing at doing similar stuff at Barclays. And so Megan and I have ended up as a, um, a little team of troublemakers inside Barclays trying to bring an external viewpoint in there. So... When, when I think about the times that we've had conversations, um, whether it was in Singapore or London or Amsterdam or others, I just, um, I think about, you know, I, I could be anywhere, whether it's in, in, a, in, a, in, a, 
in a bar or club or a restaurant and you and I sort of find this quiet little corner. Um, so so that's, that's what's great about like our conversations and our friendship because I could not see you for like six months or a year, but then it's like, I just fall into this conversation with you. One of the yeah. times, one of the times I was in Singapore with you, you introduced me the first time I believe to Gavin Littlejohn. And mm. you said, you should talk to this guy. And so Gavin and I went into a corner as we do, and we started talking about open banking. And he introduced me to this idea that open banking is so much more broad uh, than a regulatory sort of initiative. And um, I just I just loved his take on it and I've sort of embraced it as my own. So, so that being the case, and now that you're back in London uh, or near London, um, talk about open banking. Talk about PSD2 and the data initiatives and open banking in Europe and outside of that current, you know, given, given current conditions, you would think that financial innovation would, would have this pause, this great pause, because banks are already reluctant to share data as it is. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with open banking? What's going to happen with, you know, sort of the way we think about things opening up? What, what, what's your thought? Well, it's going to be, it's going to be a reasonably esoteric thought. I think um, having a, a approach to this from a non-banking and also a non-regulatory background, um, but absolutely, uh, as I said, Brad, we can end up um, just bumping into each other after a very long time, and suddenly four or five hours have disappeared as we try to set the world to rights. Um, and Gavin's been Gavin, who who I have all of the time in the world for. Um, uh, I think it's got the exact right view of open banking, but he is a far more patient and politically savvy and um, well-rounded individual than I. And so the way that he's approaching this is, I think, exactly the right way, which is an incredibly consumer-centric approach. But if you go to banks um, and start talking to them about consumer centricity, then you probably get pointed to the innovation department um, I do love how I've managed to be mean to like three completely separate groups of people in one sentence there. That's great. Um, whereas Gavin understands that you go to banks and you go and start talking to them about uh, regulatory requirements, um, compliance, um, that you end up talking to people who've got power to influence stuff. Um, and so what he's doing with uh, both FData and Gofki, I think, is... Uh, he's trying to get to the right place, and he's also trying to get to the right place, going the right, going via the right route. Um, where are we going to get to? Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head that banks are reluctant to share data. Um, I think that we are. I think that we're starting to have the right conversations about whose data it is, um, and uh psd2 is making it pretty clear who's that data is an illegal construct um i don't know whether we holistically of an industry have actually come to an agreement about whose data it is from a societal construct yet i think um the banks feel themselves as the guardians of the data and also feel that they have a degree of ownership over the data um uh, even if their, their, their legal contract is to is to be a guardian of it and the, uh, I think we're going to, uh, as we go into open finance from open data, and as we see these open banking companies um, uh, 
of name kind of plaid um tink um and their ilk um who take the data aggregate the data um derive something from the data and then sell the derivation that i think is where we're going to start focusing quite a few of these legal and social questions is very well your transaction data is yours the bank's looking after that that's absolutely great and i as the customer can ask you as the bank to share that transaction data with this third party that's absolutely fine um, and the person who's going to share it with that third party is going to be an intermediary and that's fine and it's pretty clear whose data that is but at each stage that data has been to some degree certainly copied probably aggregated possibly derived who has the rights over the things that are derived from there which in kind of marketing speak might be called insights or analytics or aggregated anonymized information that i think is a slightly less clear um both legal and societal um uh there's there's less clear legal and societal implications of that thing um i think that's one area where i hope that we're going to focus a bit more in, in a bit more of our energies in open banking um the second one i think is that um open banking to me has been a net positive for the industry because you have taken a mass of large organizations and let's kind of take psd2 rather than just the open banking implementation of it but psd2 has definitely been a net positive because you've taken a large amount of organizations that probably wouldn't have done anything like it before and you told them that this is what you have to do in a very prescriptive way like these are the apis that you need this is how they have to work these are your deadlines and so you've taken a vast swathe of companies that might not have done it and forced them to do it but you've also at the same time taken companies that were probably going to do different potentially innovative things and that might not have been the same as what psd2 open banking has mandated and uh you've uh told them that they have to play on the same level as everybody else so you've taken um if i can be slightly pejorative and say uninnovative organizations and forced them to be innovative but you have also as a byproduct of that taken organizations that would otherwise have been incredibly innovative innovative and made them dedicate their resources to being the same level of innovative as all of the other organizations and so now that you've got everybody at the same level notwithstanding that a few deadlines have been missed and there's been uh uh, we were not there yet in terms of everybody being on the same level um now you have to get everybody to go to the next level and what i'd love to see would be an understanding that now that everybody is on the same level maybe we can loosen the reins a bit to let the companies that want to do some truly innovative stuff um do that innovative stuff rather than trying to force everybody to take one more step as just let a few companies take two or three big steps and then see what the outcome of that is because taking a prescriptive approach to the evolution of open banking which in the UK the evolution of PSD2 which in the UK is going to be open finance um i fear is going to mean that we don't lead by what the customers need but we lead by what the um lobbying and regulatory organizations decide that the customer should have which is kind of antithetical to where all of this started in the first place
so if we were to 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 take that and move to the other side of the globe where we have a completely different um shall we say state of innovation <laughs> i'm trying to find the right word for it um with with the um with alibaba with tencent of grab and GoDaddy, <clears throat> and all of the the different um tech companies um that are popping up and they're all looking at digital finance how can we use payment apps to improve the financial lives of people um people consumers micro entrepreneurs and what have you um let's talk a little bit about that and back to your experience earlier then we were talking about the um, payment company that you created in indonesia um with with so many options going on right now where do you think the market is going are they really actually improving the financial lives of people why are we having such a hard time doing something similar at west there's a lot there's a lot that's a load of questions um, yeah uh so first of all let me start with a few caveats um uh i've not even visited asia now for god this is depressing two years um and i've not been kind of on the ground building fintech things in asia now for god this is even more depressing probably four years um and four years in a southeast asian fintech is a lifetime in four years in, uh, if I can be pejorative to the other side of the world, four years in American fintech uh, is nothing because like nothing bloody happens over there. But four years in Southeast Asian fintech is is forever. And so I'm probably going to be uh, with my views um, a little bit out of date uh, and, and would welcome people to come and castigate me on social media about this as well. That's the only way that we learn. Uh, second of all, my experience is Southeast Asia as opposed to China. Um, I've never built or run a company in China, um, but uh, I've done a fair bit of it in Southeast Asia. Um, so there's two caveats put aside. Um, let's try and take each of these kind of questions one by one. Um, uh, uh, let's take them backwards. Why are we having so much problem doing it over here? Um, I have an answer in my head and just give me a moment to temper it so that it doesn't get me fired. Um, look, we've got a, we, we have a financial services system over here in the West. Um, and uh, it is for um, some of the people um, vaguely fit for purpose. Uh, and the some of the people for whom it is vaguely fit for purpose are pretty much um, the people who've got the money and the people who've got the money are pretty much the people who've got the power. So why is there going to end up being this big drive of innovation over here in the West when the thing that we have is vaguely good enough for the people that are considered to be important by society anyway? If you compare that to what happened um, Southeast Asia, um, as uh, as Mobile phones exploded over there. There just wasn't anything that was fit for purpose. And there was banks, sure, and there was branchless banking initiatives in Indonesia, um, a couple of which had been successful and many of which had been done for the wrong reasons and hadn't been successful. Uh, but there just wasn't appropriate services, financial services, for people that exist in the region. I think this is probably true in China as well, although, as I say, I don't, I don't have first-hand experience, but um, the idea that 
um, uh, Tencent and Alipay existed because there, there wasn't applicable financial services and that they filled that need, I don't think it's contentious. Um, but focusing on, on like Indonesia, which is, is somewhere I spent a, a fair bit of time, um, as we did all of our research um, on the second iteration of our of our product that we were building, the thing that I took away from it was that uh, people who live a predominantly cash or an entirely cash-based existence back then, this is pre-Gojek, pre-GoPay, um, uh, people who lived a very cash-based existence but had um, a small amount of money, so kind of less than ten ten dollars a day kind of amount of amount of income and and money had exceptionally good financial services. We uh, their their ability to um, uh, earn money, save money, remit money, borrow money, lend money, actually if you think about it in the kind of metrics that we think about it in the West, like what is it that you want from a financial services provider, they have better financial services than we do. It's just that they're not centralized. It's just that they're not governed. Um, they're not at the scale and they're generally not digitized. And the ability for, um, for these people, uh, and when I say these people, let me kind of be clear, I'm talking here about um, people who are um, native to Indonesia who um, live a geographically reasonably constrained existence. And these, this is not people who are going to get on a plane and go to holiday to Thailand or Singapore. Um, these are people who um, live most of their lives within a given community um, and for whom travel is a as a, a serious endeavor. Um, their unquantifiable financial services um, provide them with a better quality of service than trying to transpose our Western ideals about what a banking service should be onto their lives. I think this is still true. Um, uh, I don't uh, as I say, I've not been on the ground there for a depressingly long time, but I very much doubt it has fundamentally changed. Um, Gojek appeared, uh, and actually the company that turned into GoPay, uh, run by Audi, um, uh, started at about the same time as Wobi in Indonesia. Um, it was called Mapan, um, and before that it was called Ruma. And uh, Ruma and Wobi started... Um, a similar idea, which is how do you allow people to be able to make money by selling digital goods within their community? Um, and uh, Audi, uh, I, I don't want to phrase it as a battle, but let's say that Audi is now running GoPay, one of the biggest uh, wallet and financial services companies in Indonesia and I know work for Barclays. So I think one of us won and the other one didn't. Um, but they definitely got there. Um, and I think they've probably changed the landscape in Indonesia. I think that now the idea of everybody leaving, having an entirely cash-based existence is uh, less true than it was. But I do think that if you dig under the surface and figure out how people are building their own concept of financial services, of remittances and lending and borrowing and saving, 
within their communities that you probably find that they have better access to financial services than we do here in the West. Um, so maybe we can take a lesson from that. Um, maybe if we stopped trying to force a centralized um, and account-based theory of financial services onto people and instead try to build community-based financial services here in the West, we'd have a bit of success because some of the fundamentals of um, community and society still exist over here, but they're just beaten down by our hierarchical view of what conventional financial services is. That was a very long question, a very long answer to a, to a question, I'm sorry. You know, when I think about, um, again, the conversations that we've had and just uh, when I first met you in the San Francisco office at Standard Chartered, I just, I think about, um, I think about that first conversation and coming across from it and saying, you know what, this is, this is not a typical banking person. And, and that's what I think immediately sort of drew myself to more conversations with you because I don't like to think of myself as a banker. And that is really an awful thing for anyone to consider themselves. And, you know, to anybody who does that's listening to the podcast, I could just say, have more conversations with people like Drew. Um, so, you know, I, I, there's, there's other questions we could certainly dive into, but it's that sort of existential, you know, dialogue that we've always had that that makes me want more, more of Drews in this industry. Um, because if we were more thoughtful about the differences that we have in our cultures, in our communities, and we think of, you know, financial services as being what I like to call the poetry um, of our lives. And it's simply something that weaves itself into our day. When, when you think about the things that we're not doing, and if you were, you know, in charge of, let's just, we won't say it's Barclays, we'll just say a big bank or like a, a national thing with resources and teams and whatever else you need to build stuff. Um, what other places do you think that this industry needs to go? What are the things do we need to fix? You know, let's, let's end with that conversation. If, if you had like this magic wand, what would you do? What would you do to make banking better? Well, there's a question. Um, so the first thing, um, so one of the mantras of startups is uh, you're not talking to your customers enough. And if any entrepreneur that asked me to have kind of help them set something up, um, we have those initial conversations. The stick that I beat them, with, there's two sticks that I beat them with, kind of one with the left hand and one with the right hand. The one with the left hand is that um, go and find yourself a therapist because you're about to beat the living crap out of yourself. And then the one with the stick in the other hand uh, is you're not talking to your customers enough. It doesn't matter how much you're talking to your customers, you're not talking to your customers enough. And this is true in banks and this is true in financial services. Kind of if you go and walk through Canary Wharf with a net and go and catch yourself a random 20 people in that net and then ask them when was the last time that they sat down and had a structured two-way conversation with their customer, not a kind of here is what we're selling and here's the thing that we're going to sell you and open wide and swallow this, but actually a two-way conversation. I don't think that you'd find anybody in in that sample that had a conversation with their customer in the last five years. And like you give me a magic wand, that's the first thing. 
right? You work in retail banking, it doesn't matter what seniority you are, whether you work in compliance or products or whether you work in tech, like your job is to figure out what the problems are that you're solving. Like, why do you go to work every day? Why do you do this blinkered activity that you're paid an extortionate amount of money to do if you don't understand how this fits into the wider picture? Uh, we, I think as banking, uh, and this is speaking of somebody who's worked in banking for 30 seconds, but banking used to be about solving problems for customers and creating value. Kind of, you, you read the, the history of banking, the origin of banking, um, and kind of banking being synonymous with capitalism. It was about finding an area where value could be created and then facilitating the creation of that value. And that was kind of the central tenet of um, of commercial banking and then following that kind of retail banking. Um, and we've lost that. Like banking now in general is not about value creation, it's about value extraction. It is about how can we create uh, a efficient machine that uh, is able to, um, uh, using the power of incumbency to extract the value from and this isn't just retail banking, this is as much commercial banking and investment banking as anything else, um, to extract that value. And I think that's the first thing that we have to fundamentally change, is acknowledge that since 2008, um, the world has changed in a way that it's not going to unchange. And in 2008, I'm not talking about the financial crisis, which, and for all of the bankers, who are listening to this, hopefully there's one or two of them. When I said the word 2008, you thought financial crisis. And I know you did, because you worked for a bank. However, that is the problem. The biggest thing that happened to your industry in 2008 was not the financial crisis, it was the release of the App Store on the iPhone. That, Apple's human interface guidelines have had a bigger impact on the retail banking industry than the financial crisis has. Yet, you say 2008 to anybody that you walk past in Canary Wharf where all of the retail banks are and ask them what they think, every single person is going to answer the global financial crisis. But what happened was Apple released the human interface guidelines for the iPhone, which was the precursor to or the, the rule book for creating apps, which then led to, and I'm not going to go into the details, we all know what it led to, but that has fundamentally changed. And that is the opportunity for us to stop thinking about banking as value extraction and start thinking about banking in terms of value creation. And I also think, and we're going through the middle of it at the moment, and so I, I don't have the benefit of hindsight for this view, but it kind of feels like we're in the middle of another of those moments now with the myriad of crises that are going on in, in, in the world, um, that this is another inflection point no, inflection point's the wrong phrase. This is another uh, moment in time which has upended all of the rules that applied before. And we have, again, an opportunity, and it's happened so quickly relatively after 2008 that maybe it's a compounding opportunity for us to rethink of what banking should look like in terms of value creation as opposed to value extraction. Um, I've got a plethora of ideas as to what that should look like. Um, one of them is everybody should go and talk to their customers more. We talked about that. Uh, the second one is the difference between technology and software. And this is, I think, a fundamental one that uh, people working in banking either don't think about or are too scared to think about. 
as people in banking think about technology the thing that enables their business model whereas um software a software development company a company whose prime directive is the creation of software thinks about the business model is enabling their software like what do you do we make software for people in order to effectively make software you have to solve a problem for a customer there is no intermediary step hello i'm a person or a group of people i have this problem here is the software that solves that problem like you are directly solving that problem your business model is then what allows you to continue to solve that problem like there is uh, a customer has a problem that problem is quantifiable you have solved that problem with software that quantifiable is the amount of money that they're going to pay for the software and there is your business model that's the opposite of banking what's the banking business model here are the suite of products that we offer you which are going to be the same as the suite of products that everybody else is offer you, offers you and it give or take is going to cost the same regardless who you go to like we're all going to screw you in a slightly different way and you kind of get to decide like which way you want to get screwed but effectively you get the same suite of products from the same suite of companies and you get screwed about the same much over any given period of time that's banking there is no correlation between what is the problem that the person has and what is the software that you have built that solved the problem there is this massive chain of value extraction intermediary steps so we kind of have to go from thinking about how do we use technology to enable our ability to do what we've always done to how do we build software to solve problems for customers and that software is going to solve financial problems for customers great and the business model will follow and i don't think as an industry that we've even started to get there yet but the absolute gut-wrenching soul-destroying tear-inducing chaos that's going on in the world at the moment is an opportunity and i feel a little bit sick calling it an opportunity because of everything that's going on but i think it probably is an opportunity for us to do this for us to say what are the problems that exist and have not just exist but have come to the fore over the last few months that maybe weren't as visible the few months before how do we solve those problems and if we can figure out a way of solving those problems in the modern world where everybody has an iphone and i've got a plethora of computers in front of me at the moment that problem's probably going to be solved in some fashion to do with software solve that problem with software figure out what the business model is that's going to follow that but that means that your prime directive has got to be the building of software and the biggest direct the biggest um uh, uh impetus for building software being successful is are you solving a problem for a customer and that kind of isn't twined with what the fundamental problem with banking is as well well wow, i'm going to get fired after this i am um, no I, I think i think it's something that needs to be said and i think it resonates um that that's the reason why we love you so much um there is a reason why banking exists Right. And like you say, banking exists not just to extract value from the ecosystem and seem to be doing more and more of that, is to actually create value. It solves the fundamental problems that people have. It's not just to create an account. Is what do we use with that account? What do we use with that technology and ability to make people's lives better, to help them do yeah. what they were not able to do before? And, um, yeah. and, and I know Brett will hate me for that, but I remember the first time I met him, I called him the, the banker with the conscience. He almost had a allergic reaction to the word, and he kept telling me, "I'm not a banker." So I'm going to say this to both of you: 
um, you guys are, and you are different, and that's why we love you guys, because you, you are seeing a lot of things that people are not willing to look at. And I think it's, it's time, once call it opportunity, but it is an opportunity to do better. So thank you so much for joining us today, Drew. It's always a pleasure and uh, stay safe thank and you stay both. healthy. Thank you.